My son Jordan brings his dog over to our house, oh, usually a couple of times a week, and takes, uh, takes her and, and our old dog and, and goes and runs them out in the park. And we were laughing a couple of days ago. You know, our old dog just isn't running as quickly as he used to. You know, and uh, he hobbles the next day after he's been exercising hard. He's just not as fast as he used to be. Things get sore. I can relate to that. Um, But uh, there are some things about my dog that have not changed. Even as he's gotten older, his response to certain things is just... Pure enthusiasm. A tennis ball in your hand causes him to do a dance in the backyard, thinking that he's on his way out to chase that ball like some young buck once again. The sight of my wife in her walking shoes and her walking pants. She can't wear them around the house unless she is taking him for a walk because he is bonkers at the sight of those things. Um, I just love to kind of trick him every once in a while and grab some food out of the food bin and just dump it into the metal bowl. And, you know, wherever he is in the house, he comes running because that means it's time to eat. I've never thought my dog is too bright, actually. But uh, I was reading some things about people this week. That made me rethink my dog's intelligence. (laughs) Let me just read you a few here. One writer said, I have habits that make people think I'm mental and strange. Like when I get a drink, I have to wash the cup out exactly three and one half times. Otherwise, I will not drink out of the cup because I will feel sick. Same person said, when I turn my TV off, I have to put it on channel one before, before I click off. Otherwise, I feel something bad will happen. And then this person asked, it's kind of this blog I was reading. This person said, are these kinds of things normal? Answer? No. Another person said this, I have to put large spoons and small spoons in separate drawers. I don't care about the forks, but the spoons freak me out. I love this one. I have to put my left shoe on first. If I pick up the right one by accident, I'll put it down and get the left one instead. I'm sorry if any of these are close to home here. (laughs) No names, no names. This one is the prize winner. This, I think, is the all-time Darwin Award. Adele Edwards is a 31-year-old mother of five who compulsively eats Couch cushions. That's true. Couch cushions. She's reportedly been doing it for 21 years. She rips little pieces out of couch cushions and eats them throughout the course of her day. Now, sometimes she'll bring them with her in a purse and snack on them on the go. It's estimated that she sometimes eats the equivalent of a throw pillow every week. In the last year, this is a quote... I've eaten seven sofas. I unzip the cushions and snack on the foam inside. And once I start, I just can't stop. 
But now the doctors have told me that if I carry on, my addiction will kill me. No kidding. That's a true story. And I thought my dog was strange. He looked smarter by the moment. Let's be honest. We're weird. People are just strange. We, we are... <laughs> yeah, I'd like to think some are stranger than me. Maybe not. You know, I'm guessing that, that we don't have any couch eaters in here. But I'll bet we have some reactions to words or events or circumstances that are very predictable, much as my dog's reaction is very predictable to certain things, keywords and situations that cause a response in us that is often the same as it was the time before and the time before that and the time before that. We uh, hear or see certain things and our minds just immediately go to that place. Or we see an action or there's an event, a song. Let's try it. Let me say, uh, let me say a few words and you just make a note of where your mind goes when I say this. You don't, certainly don't have to speak anything out loud. Afghanistan. Muslim. Republican. Democrat. Oakland Raiders. <laughs> Stewardship. Tithing. Taxes. Ooh, I shouldn't have put those two together. Um, tofu. Now, how about earlier this morning when you saw those green palm branches? Some of you thought, oh, yes. And others thought, oh, no, here we go again. That silly processional around the sanctuary. Be honest, you got a little nervous. Some of you, you saw those green leaves come out. It's interesting, isn't it? Certain words, certain events, circumstances, situations, they, they create in our minds expectations. And, and sometimes some very real and powerful emotions that go along with that. And much of it, I think, depends upon our, our particular experience and what we've had with that in the past, as well as our, our personalities and, and just how we respond on a regular basis to, to external kind of stimuli around us. This is Palm Sunday. And, and I want us to read this morning one of the traditional texts. It's Matthew's text. And it is just loaded with this kind of stuff. We're going to dig just a little bit into it together. It's the text that, that we often refer to as the triumphal entry. It's the text that, that, that marks the entrance of Jesus into Jerusalem, the beginning of the week of Passover. It's the week that, that marks his death. And it's an event that is so significant that all four of the gospel writers record the triumphal entry. The coming of Jesus into the, the king's city is full of 
expectations and, and, and associations and the emotion and the buzz that, that goes with that. So I want to invite you to stand with me this morning. It's going to read from Matthew 21. Um, there are a couple of congregations in here. We'll do it sort of in an antiphonal fashion. So let's have you folks over here on my left. You'll be congregation number one. And you folks over here on my right, you'll be congregation number two. Okay? So here we go. Matthew's spin on the triumphal entry. I'll start us off. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will save them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees, spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Oh, wait, got to do that again. You almost shouted, but not quite, okay? Feign excitement here, all right? Try it again. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Good. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Together, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. Amen. My brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord on Palm Sunday. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. A couple of crowds here. Those that are traveling with Jesus. Those that are within the city of Jerusalem. Who who heard this traveling crowd coming. There's energy. There's excitement in the air. Now, I want you to have a quick discussion with your neighbor. And at the risk of seeming almost silly, I want you to discuss this. Why? Were the people in Jerusalem asking that question, who is this? Ask your neighbor. Why were they asking that question? Who is this? See what your neighbor thinks. Could have been some of that as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. All of this stuff, I think, was, it was part of, of what was going on. Now, now tell me again. What's the name of the city? Jerusalem. And what do we know about Jerusalem? David's city. It's the city where kings reigned. 
And Rick mentioned Psalm 118. Listen to a few of the words in Psalm 118. The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The Lord has done this. It is marvelous in our eyes. Psalm 118 was, was traditionally understood to be a psalm of a victorious leader, perhaps a victorious general, victorious king um, after a battle. Lord, Nats pointed out the word Hosanna, a Hebrew expression that, that really meant save us. Lord, save us. The psalmist writes in, in 118, grant us success. Then the last verse, verse 26 of this particular section, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A messianic understanding for, for years and years and years in the traditions of Israel. And, and there is a lot of energy and buzz that's going into this, and it makes it a significant, significant scene. The triumphal entry. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, verse 10 tells us in that text that the whole city was stirred. That word literally means to set in motion. Man, there was a buzz that was set in motion. These folks on the inside were hearing these folks on the outside. And, and some recognized Jesus. Some didn't. Some were, were, were perhaps anticipating this day in their hearts. Others were confused because they knew he was from Nazareth. And what good thing comes out of Nazareth? And, and the, there's just a buzz that's going on in this city, David's city, the blessed city, Zion, the city of kings. And I think because it was Jerusalem, I'll just throw this out to you. It was a city with a long history of kings, and some of those kings were good, and a lot of those kings were rotten to the core. A city... That presently, under, at that time, was under the rule of the Roman Empire and their king. His name was Caesar, Emperor Caesar. And the Jews had not had their own king at that point for approximately 400 years. Zedekiah, final king of Judah, had rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. That was a bad idea and uh, destroyed the city. And the only exception to no king in 400 years, if, if we can call it that, was the Herod dynasty that was reigning at present. And that was appointed by the Roman Empire. And the most recent, of course, Herod the Great. You remember that name? He's the one that, that ordered the massacre of all the male children at Bethlehem under age two or under. There's a, a, a lot of, of mixed emotion, I think, in this crowd and without reading too much into that simple question, perhaps, I'd like to just say that the people of Jerusalem would have had both some sense of anticipation, but also, I think it's legit to say, some concerns. They're hearing all these kingly exaltations and, 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 and this, this parade of people doing things that they understood from Psalm 118, those who did understand it, that were, were messianic and, and, and proclamations regarding God's anointed one. And the text tells us again that the city is, is stirred up. These are people who have a history and some understanding of kings. And they knew that kings weren't always necessarily cracked up to be all that they were supposed to be. And I would suggest that perhaps their response was uh, 
a little bit like your response this morning to Republican or Democrat or taxes or Afghanistan, the idea of wars. Those associations came into the minds of these people because those are things that kings do. Kings come and kings impose their will and kings create a certain way of life. And the crowd and and the messianic shouts, at least from those who were caught up in the moment and excited about it, they wanted a king. They wanted a good king. They wanted a king that would do what kings in everybody's mind what they're supposed to do. Hosanna. Save us. They're supposed to save their people. They're supposed to provide for their people a, a better way of life as a result of their rule. And so the question, who is this? Who is this? Has all kinds of possibilities. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Who is this? Is this Carpenter's son the king? Who is this? What should we expect? Questions about background, questions about about heart and quality of this person, questions about capability. Will, if he is a king, will he do what a good king is supposed to do? Well, most of us know the story of the week. By the end of the week, many of the same voices that had shouted Hosanna were shouting crucify him. Evidently, he didn't measure up. I think it's right here where this very familiar story for so many of us has a really important lesson. Most of us understand and we believe that Jesus was and still is a king. Despite the bumper sticker that says my boss is a Jewish carpenter, he was a Jewish carpenter. He is now the king and the Lord of the universe. We, we understand that. And it's noteworthy that Jesus didn't deny all the accolades and everything that was being said about him. You know, he didn't refuse the royal entry. In fact, it almost seems when you read the beginning of the story, he set it up. It was purposeful. But if we were boldly honest, at least in some quiet moments with ourselves, we would want to admit to some of those same questions about the rule of Jesus. What kind of a king is he really? About his heart and his intent. What will he do for his people Because here's the truth. Jesus doesn't always do what we think he should do as a king. Which is exactly what led the crowd to crucify him. I want to say to you this morning that that if we don't have proper expectations... And understanding about Jesus as king and how life is lived in his kingdom. There's a good possibility 
I hope this doesn't sound too harsh. There is a good possibility that we will figuratively crucify Jesus over and over and over. Because we are not living our lives as if he really is king. Do you notice what he rode into the city? A donkey. What kind of a king rides a donkey? I'm thinking conquering stallion. I'm thinking war horse. I'm thinking, man, put it out there. Let's get the job done. And that's what a lot of these folks were thinking. But, but historians tell us, archaeology tells us that, that oftentimes a king rode a donkey as a symbol of peace. If a king didn't necessarily want to do battle... He rode a donkey as a symbol of peace. Matthew records that prophecy from Zechariah hundreds of years before. Your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey. A gentle king that rides a donkey? The Jews wanted a king who would be a political redeemer. Kick the butts of the Romans and get them out of town. Someone who would rescue them from those creeps and establish for them their rightful rule on top of the world as the people of God. And it's here that we need to be careful. It's here that we need to work hard as the people of God to discern the King that Jesus is And the king that Jesus is often made out to be by a particular faction or by a particular party, by a particular group. What kind of a king is Jesus? Oh, oh, he's a king. And he did come to inaugurate his rule and and a kingdom. But that kingdom, it didn't have anything to do with earthly kingdoms unless... It was to instruct his people how not to live as citizens of that kingdom on the earth. They wanted a king with power enough to deliver them from their enemies. Jesus did have power enough and he would deliver them. He just didn't deliver them from the Romans. They wanted a king with power enough to give them the life that they thought they deserved. He did have that kind of power, but instead, he used his power to give them the life that they didn't deserve. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, tells this great story. He says, as a child, I I lived in an area of southern Mississippi, southern Missouri, excuse me, where electricity was available only in the form of lightning. We had more of that than we could use. But in my senior year of high school, the REA, Rural Electrification Administration, extended its lines into the area where we lived and electrical power became available to households and farms. He says it just changed the life of so many. He said, but we still had to believe in the electricity and its arrangements, understand them, and take the practical steps involved in relying on electricity versus 
doing things the old way. He says, now you may think the comparison is rather crude in some respects. It is, I guess. But it will help us to understand Jesus' basic message about the kingdom of God if we pause to reflect on those farmers who, in effect, heard the message, repent for electricity is at hand. Repent or turn from their kerosene lamps and lanterns, their ice boxes and cellars, their scrub boards and rug beaters, their woman-powered sewing machines and their radios with dry cell batteries. Willard goes on to say the power that could make their lives far better was right there near them where they were. And by making some simple arrangements, they could utilize it. Strangely, he says, a few did not accept it. They did not enter the kingdom of electricity. They just didn't want to change. Others, they didn't think they could afford it. My friends, we will come to the end of this week, familiar as it is, and we will read through again the story of the crucifixion of Jesus, the King. And, and, and we may experience a fair amount of, of even anger again at those people who crucified Jesus just because he wasn't the kind of king that they wanted. What's the matter with those people? Same thing that's the matter with us. A lot of the time. They didn't want to live as citizens of his kingdom. They wanted him to live in a way that accommodated the desires they had for their kingdom. How about us? Jesus didn't come to give us the life of our choosing. He came to give us a life of his choosing and and he calls us to live as citizens of his kingdom. It's it's like no other kingdom. It's what I call an uncanny kingdom. Uncanny means seeming to have a supernatural character or origin about it. Yeah. Being beyond what is normal or expected. Suggesting superhuman or supernatural powers. Yes. The Jews of that day were expecting a normal king who has power to do what normal kings do. This was no normal king. He was a king who used his power to do the unexpected and to live his life and to call his followers to live the same life, a life that is different, a life that abides by different standards and rules. Things like love your enemies. Be glad when you are persecuted. Do not murder. In fact, don't even be angry at others. Do not resist an evil person. Forgive those who sin against you. Do not worry about your life. Don't store up earthly treasures. Do not judge others. Welcome to the kingdom of God over which King Jesus rules. You know, I think that if we are serious about following Jesus, and we're serious about understanding that, that His commandments are for those who are following Him and want to experience life in His kingdom, then we're probably at times going to ask the same question. Who is this? And why are we doing it this way? It's His way. It's the King's way. He's an uncanny king. And he rules an uncanny kingdom. 
He's a king who allowed himself to be sacrificed so that his followers might be filled with his spirit in order that they too would live an uncanny life. I send you on your way today with the thought, what kind of king is Jesus to me? Do I want the salvation that he brings, but I don't pay any attention to the life that he's called me to live? Wouldn't it be cool if our obedience to Jesus were such a part of our daily life that people started asking us, Who are you? You just aren't normal. That would be the greatest compliment any of us could ever receive. Praise Him. Come up and lead us as we respond this morning. Celebration of our King. The uncanny King who rules the uncanny kingdom gives His people His Spirit that they might live uncanny lives for His glory. Amen.